Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Let's get started. DealQuest community, I'm so excited to have Pierre Alexander the Breeze on the DealQuest podcast. I, I I told him I wanted to try to pronounce the entire name, but we're going to call it Pierre going forward. Pierre has launched one of the first financial due diligence practices, 100% dedicated to SaaS businesses, and the first online course on how to conduct financial due diligence. Pierre is a PwC Transaction Services alumni and an ESEC, ESIC, uh, MBA alumni and has accumulated over eight years of financial due diligence experience, including three fully dedicated to reviewing SaaS and subscription model businesses. He's also worked as a private equity investment associate and M&A advisor and understands well the prism and process of professional investors and regularly writes technical articles about FDD, M&A, and financial analysis, which are published in top-ranked websites like TechCrunch, uh, top toll and uh, micro acquire. Pierre, I'm so excited about having you on the Deal Quest podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot for the great introduction. Thanks for having me and good job on the name. <laughs> uh, well, I did it. I know I was at uh, Pierre. I was just talking off there. I literally got back from France, which is his background, you know, the other day or actually last night from when we we're recording this. And so I was, you know, I've been, I've been doing my best to try to, uh, to, to, for, for a kid that had his only failing grade. Like an A student and his only failing grade in language, which was Spanish back in high school in his life, doing, doing the best I can. In any case, listen, Pierre, I'm excited to have you on. You, um, you really focus in a niche, which is very, very interesting. I mean, it's like a niche of a niche, right? You know, it's that financial due diligence niche. And then, you know, and then niche even further down the SAS at subscription businesses, which is really, really fascinating. But before we get into that in more detail and what you're doing now and who you serve, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe eight, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because I'm pretty sure, now you can tell me I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure being a financial due diligence specialist in the SaaS subscription business space was not in it then, but you, you tell me if I'm wrong. It, it was clearly not. But you know what? Thinking back of when I was 12, I actually wanted to be a trader. But, but of course, when you're 12 year old, you already know what a trader does. But the image of a trader I had when I was 12 is, okay, I thought they were people who would look at the newspaper, understand what's happening, you know, from a geographical perspective, a geopolitical perspective in South America, figure out that if there is a conflict in that country that impacts the production of, of oil and gas in another country, and then, you know, one thing leading to another, the price of, I don't know, a pen is going to skyrocket. So let's, let's just buy a pen. Pen stuff. That's really how I figured it out because I was uh, I was reading a lot of Scrooge and Mickey, uh, Mickey Mouse and that type of things, and that's the kind of how I worked it out in my in my. In I gotta tell you something. That's that's pretty sophisticated. This is for a twelve year old. 
Yeah, but, but maybe I was 16, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm cheating a bit as a, as a question, but that was really, you know, what I thought would be interesting, being able to understand the world and how to use that knowledge, that analysis to make good business investment decision. And then, mm-hmm. then I made it to business school and I realized that no traders are just quants and people who are really good at mathematics building their models. So I, I moved to private meetings. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And one other question, looking back, what was your first deal of any time? It could be something small when you were a kid. It could be something early in your career, an early deal that comes to mind. Uh, the first deal ever was through a crowdfunding platform. You know, by like I think it was nine years ago when it just started. I think that was the first crowdfunding equity crowdfunding platform in France. And I invested in a company called Wis. Sorry, so Wis, and it was a company doing turbines. I'm just realizing that I don't necessarily have the vocabulary to describe it. So that was a company doing turbine, wind turbines, but under the shape of a tree. So uh, all, all the leaves were actually turbines, and you could put it in the middle of a street in Paris, for instance, and thanks to the biomimetism, then it would fit well with the, well with the environment. Love it. Love it. Wow. What a fascinating first, uh, first investment. What, what had you, what had you, how'd you hear about that? What had you get involved in it? So I was already interested eight years ago by the whole private equity investment scene. And so I started doing some research on Google, came across the crowdfunding website we see. I was like, oh, cool. No, I can be a venture capitalist by myself. That was really the idea. And so I went on the platform a couple of times. I saw their projects. I liked the products. I liked the fact that it was, it was more efficient than any other turbine out there. I thought that was a future and I was like, okay, let's put 300 euros on it. Now I was still a student, but I was super excited about that. I love it. I love it. So, so listen, that evolved to you getting into private equity, right? At, at some point before you started focusing more on the due diligence side. So, so tell us a little bit about that journey, what you did and, uh, you know, what, what kind of deals you focused on it. So I was in school, I tried different things. I was at Cartier for my first internship. I went to a company focusing on hip hop and urban media. Okay. That was great, but they were under, under a transaction because they were getting acquired at that stage. So that's yes. kind of what was my first touch and my first experience with the private equity guys. And then my third and last internship turned into my first job. I decided to go full, full on. And, and make it to private equity. So I started at BNP Paribas, which became Isatis Capital. Sure. And that was so great because the team were basically becoming independent. So they had double the energy to make deals and really create a track record under the new brand. So over the course of, the, of my first year with them, like we, we look at at least 15 deals and five actually went through. So. Like one of my first one was very service for old people where you would bring them meal for like 10 days. Sure. Uh, we work on another one, which was a balloon company. You know, they have a huge balloon for, for tourism where you just get there, you know, and enjoy the view. We got another one that was in te- deep tech and like super, super diversi- diversified. And I loved every hours of it. So, so, so what, talk about some of the early lessons, like, you know, so you're, you know, you obviously had this mindset from the time you were 12 or 15 or whatever yeah. the number was, right? You know, to think in a way that I think a lot of kids didn't think you were drawn to this stuff, but you know, you were joking sort of about, you know, your misconceptions of what you thought a trader was back then. You know, I know when I, when I first started the big law in, in, in New York, you know, when I was 20, whatever, you know, I had my perceptions of what 
that life was like and what deals like. And, you know, some of it was true, but a lot of it was like new learning for me. So, you know, what was the new learning for you at, at, you know, at that early stage when you got thrown in, you know, so deep and so quickly to so many deals so early? Yeah. And I think you're totally right. Like uh, that could be a totally other debate, but I really think that business school and education don't prepare us properly to what the actual lives and actual jobs are. Yeah. But honestly, I love the team. Like I, I get welcome so well into, into the team. I get along with every investment director. That was a small team. I get along with all the staff uh, who were sharing uh, office with. So it was not hard at all for me. It was quite interesting though to see that, you know, you're prepared when you, when you're at business school to do things the proper way where you have access to all the information. I think the first thing that strikes you is you don't get the information you want when you actually work in these deals. You ask for it. Sometimes you get it. Sometimes it's a PDF. Sometimes if you're lucky, it's an Excel. It's always missing some data. So the key thing I would say that kind of shocks you when you start working in these high level jobs that you saw were, were the type of job where you had access to everything and then do data driven decision is no. The main thing is you need to make decision based on limited data and on the data that you might have to get your hands on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It's a great point. I mean, and, and I think, I mean, God, I could talk about, you know, cause I a hundred percent agree with you how much you don't learn in school. And some of these practicalities, like the fact that deals have a certain pace, right? And a certain rhythm to get done. And if, if you really wanted to get all the data that they taught you in school, you should have. And by, and by the way, ideally, ideally in an ideal world, you should have in a perfect world, um, in a perfect world, you should have. Um, then, you know, how many deals would never get done, right? No, they would never. I mean, they won't 30 years ago when you could do a deal just on a piece of paper because they used to do that. Right. Uh, but but not uh, given all the parties involved, all the legal side of it, the negotiation, the timing, which is so important in deals. Yeah, you start with that view that you want everything, and the closer you go to uh, to the to the time of the deal, the the narrower it gets, and the more you're like, okay, let's just not even look at this piece of information and focus on what we have and get enough comfort based uh, on, on what we have. So listen, it would be easy to jump because that's you know that's. A lot of that is related to what you do now, right? In terms of financial yes. diligence. But before we make that jump, I just want to like keep you back at that time. Please do. I love that time. I can yeah, talk yeah. about it by hours. So, so like, you know, one of the things I remember, I would obviously watch the more senior, you know, attorneys, the partners, the senior associates and, you know, how they practically did stuff. And it's a great way to learn. What did you learn back then about how the more senior folks you were working with made decisions on what, you know, because obviously it's not, you know, uh, on the one hand, you get that reality that you're not going to get all the information that you ideally had. Yes. On the other hand, though, it's not like you just take whatever you can get, right? You got to make some distinctions about, okay, what's really important here, what's not. Yes. So, you know, what, talk about some of the early lessons on how you learned how to make those distinctions on what you really care about and what you can, I, what you'd ideally like to have, but you can let slide. Yeah. But generally, you're, you, you discuss it as a team, of course, and, and back in the days, you, you also benefit from the experience of everyone around the table. Cause the more experience in a specific industry you have or someone around the table has, easier it gets. Cause every industry has the, their specificities. And so generally at those early days of reviewing an investment, 
you start lining down the priority of, of the items. And you want to make sure that, that all the high priority items are covered. And, and then if you have more time, you go down the, go down the list. But it's, it's generally always the same one, right? It's okay. Make sure you understand revenue, revenue generation, and are we at risk of losing revenue going forward? It's understanding the market. Are we sure that the market is, is going to thrive or is, is going to be about, okay, is there any red flag? Because you, you, you need, you really need to think about, okay, what can go wrong and how can we prevent it? So let's make sure that we check everything so that we don't get scared. Clearly. But also the main thing as a, where I was kind of surprised being, going from being a student to an actual professional was on the valuation. You know how you do all those fancy stuff when you're on your back in school, you do your DCF and you learn the mathematics behind it and how your discount factor needs to be reflective of, you know, well, well, whatever industries or size, liquidity. And I, I was a great student, so I knew exactly how to do that. And then you show up, you're in small cap private equity, large cap is, is totally different. And they're like, yeah, we don't really have comparable. So let's take a company that looks like it. Okay. What's their multiples? Oh, they try out four times. Okay. So we're going to pay, oh, the same multiples, maybe a little discount. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Let's go with it. That's right. I love it. Uh, yeah. Say, uh, you're right. You know, I mean, the quant side of things is what will happen. Well, on the bigger and bigger deals, we do a lot of, a lot of deals in a lot of industries and their industries we know really, really well. And, you know, I can certainly give clients some guidance in terms of what I see generally, obviously you can get outside valuations, but you know, the smaller the deal, the more apt it is just to whatever the parties end up negotiating, right? As opposed exactly. to some sort of detailed mathematical calculation. I've seen deals going so where the definition of net debt, networking capital, etc. made no sense from the financial standpoint. But because the owner and the seller was not really financially literate, and you wanted that to be paid and be part of the equation. The phone were just like, yeah, let's just put it in. And as long as the deal is done, we, we're happy, you know? So you really need to adapt to the person in front of you on smaller deals. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the evolution. So now you're working in investment banking. You do that for, for, you know, period of time. What had to talk about that career path and what, what had you evolve into what you're doing now? Yep. So. Basically, I, again, I was loving what I was doing and I had such a great team. Like they were giving me so much more and more responsibilities. So after a year working with them, I was basically ending the relationship with the CEOs. You know, they were obviously in the back, right? But the, I, I love how like the level of trust as they demonstrated and, and the level of, of trust like what we have together. However, I had thought for what I wanted my career to look like. And honestly, private equity was really something that I could see myself work in for my entire career. However, when you start in private equity, that was my thinking back in the days. If you start in private equity, then to make it to investment director, you need to, to be good enough at financial analysis and technical enough so that you can deal with all the different parties. And you need a network because you need to be able to bring deals. And the opinion of my investment director at first, when I was chatting with them at the beginning of the internship, was that if you start in private equity, your network is going to be their network. So it's going to be harder for you to actually bring deals. It would be more beneficial to go work at PwC, work a couple of years there, become really good at financial analysis, and also build your own network so that you can come back stronger. And clearly, I do think for, from a financial analysis perspective, 
brought me a lot. Like looking back at how I was analyzing deals before and how I analyze deals now, it's, it's day and night. Right. So you did that for a little period of time and then, and then, then what happened? So, so I went to PwC, worked three years in Paris, then moved to Sydney for three years. It was clearly a move where, you know, I wanted to go in the sun and I was like, okay, let's, let's do the same thing in a, in a better environment. We don't. So, so I had like two amazing years in Sydney and after five years working in transaction services, I thought it was time for me to, to start my own business and my own practice. So came back to Europe and started working 100% free most. I thought, I thought the lifestyle would make sense. I could see that more and more people were working like this in the States. So I wanted to try my luck at that and capitalizing on what I could do. I was offering transaction services, of course, financial due diligence, business plan and financial modeling. Always been like really good with Excel and MA advisor. And I was lucky enough that in my first months, I got hired by Akil Jabber, who had just started Horizon Capital. It's based out of, of Canada. And we started working together. I liked the, I, I liked the projects. So I actually became partner in, uh, in the company with him. And so the whole thing of Horizon Capital is to provide financial advisory, M&A advisory, and also digital marketing advisory to SaaS businesses. So that's how I started being 100% focused on SaaS businesses. I love it. So, and, and where are you based now? Me, I'm in Portugal, next to Lisbon. Love it. So, so you've been, you've been in various places around, around the world that have had that experience. I love that. So, all right. So let's talk a little bit about, let's get into this focus on, on SaaS businesses, right? One of the specific things, I mean, you know, obviously there's some fundamental things you talked earlier about the fundamental things about assuring the revenue base, the market. And, you know, obviously we know as the expense side of things, whatever. I mean, obviously that's going to apply to every business, but, but SaaS, you know, businesses are their own very specific things. So talk about a little bit that, or maybe more than a little bit, that the focus in SaaS and what specifically you're looking out for in terms of SaaS businesses and evaluating them and analyzing them. But what, what I really like about SaaS businesses compared to other type of businesses is in, in a sense, once you develop the software, it's quite, quite simple to operate. I'm, I'm putting that in the uh, Bitcoin code book. You don't have logistic issues. You don't have inventories. You barely have any networking capital. So your whole focus at that stage is to focus on driving revenue and keeping your, your customers at. Yes. Right? So, so, so it's all, it's all like a great business model to, to be focusing on, especially as an investors. Cause, uh, cause basically at all reason capital, we're all also, also having the uh, investment uh, hat. And we're currently raising a fund to, to invest in those companies and help them grow through efficient digital marketing practice, basically. And so what's really great, even from a financial analysis perspective is because you get rid of all the other subjects, you can really focus on what's important on the revenue and on the cost side. And you can really deep dive and you have a lot of cool analysis that you can do. But of course, if you take a high level view, for SaaS businesses, you have a couple of metrics that generally every SaaS aficionado know, which are going to be your churn rates. So uh, how, how many customers churn and, uh, and stop using your, your products every month compared to your, your base. Yep. Your, L, your LTV, which is your lifetime customer value. So for any customer that you onboard, how much revenue you're going to be able to extract from, from that customer over a period of time. 
It's really important in SaaS businesses because I've mentioned before, once you acquire the customer, generally you have almost zero cost maintaining that customers. Right. So, so you're, you're where generally for most businesses, you know, you look at your gross profit margin or with your revenue and how much it costs you to deliver the revenue. Generally for SaaS businesses, you look at how much it costs you to acquire that business right. and then how much revenue you're going to generate from, from, from that customer. Right. So if you think about it, you know, I mean, the great thing about SaaS businesses, right, is exactly that. I mean, you've got that recurring revenue. It's super scalable without expenses scaling accordingly, right? So, yeah. So, I mean, we have the customer acquisition costs, right? That's, yes. that's, that's you. I mean, that, that's important in any business, but it's certainly very important to SaaS business, right? And then you said, li- right, lifetime value in the customer, obviously, which, which is related to the other thing you said, which is basically churn rate or turnover, right? Because the longer they stay, I mean, because it's a recurring revenue model. So, yeah, I mean, so, and, and the, and the truth is the marginal expense difference is almost irrelevant. So really it's right. It's what does it cost to get them? Make sure you don't lose them. And then how long are you going to have them for? Right. Exactly. It's, it's, it's conceptually simple, but execution wise, not, not always. Exactly. Exactly. And, and the level of details and breakdown you can have when you are, you analyze the trends is, is I, I find super interesting. Because one thing, and that's all true for any type of analysis, but generally people are more used to looking at, uh, at the ratios as a point in time. You know, even when you do financial investments, you're like, oh, what's your PE ratio? What's okay. It's great to have the ratio at a point in time, but you all, what's super important is to look at the ratio over time as well. And yes. how they've, how they've been training in the past six months or in, in the past year. Cause, for instance, let's, let's take a business, you know, let's talk about churn, for instance. If you take a business that has a certain level of churn, but because in the first customer that they managed to acquire, they were the keen one. They were the one that really wants the product. So they're going to stay forever. And the more new customers you get, the less keen the customers are. So the higher churn. So you, you may, you may see that you may see a slight decline in churn. But if you start breaking it down, by cohort, so by uh, by the dates uh, at which you onboarded customers, maybe you will see that the situation is much worse than what you you thought it, it was. Right. Because there is always a delay, and that's that's super important to understand in SaaS. For all the metrics, you have a delay based on the behavior of the new customers. Yeah, and that, you know that raises a fundamental thing that a lot of businesses in all industries make the mistake on, and that is relying upon lagging indicators as opposed to leading indicators. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So what are the, you know, one of the leading indicators? And I guess it's interesting to me. I hadn't really thought about it this way, but whereas churn rate overall may be a lagging indicator, when you break it down into its with deeper components and segment it out, it could become a, if you're looking at only newer clients or certain, you know, whatever, it actually, that same metric, meaning churn rate, analyzed in a different slice could actually become more of a leading indicator than a leg indicator, right? Exactly. Uh, he, has, he has a huge impact on all your forecasts, of course, because then he has a compounding effect. If people start leaving faster and faster, then that, that can have a huge impact post-acquisition or, or on your revenue, but also on, on your gross margin overall and on, on your EBITDA. Right, which of course then affects valuation if you're talking about in connection with an M&A deal. Exactly. Yeah, so so it's really interesting because, you know, we have these conversations with clients often because they always, people want to know, right, 
even a multiples or, you know, what, what do companies in my industry sell for? And, you know, and, and whether it's in, we do a lot in financial services, for example, and yeah, sure. I mean, I can give people ranges depending upon the size of the company, exactly. type of line, you know, generally I can even give people revenue multiples, even though that's never a way to really value almost any kind of company, but you can always back into a multiple, right? But like in that industry, for example, in, in wealth management, just to, just to give pick an industry we do a lot in. You know, well, average age of clients, life to client relationships, concentration risk. I can go on and on and on. Yes. Right? Can all those things can make a, a significant difference in the value? So, you know, delving into this, I mean, just taking that example mm-hmm. of, of of churn rate, you can you can look at two different SaaS companies that at a top level have the same churn rate, right? But w- but if you analyze what's happening with the newer with, with the newer clients, it can be very very different. That's exactly right. And, and that's also why talking about valuation. So today I agree with you. When clients ask you for evaluation, at the end of the day, what I always tell them is, look, I do have the academic background to do a proper valuation for you if you want. I can go get comparable. It's good to have a bit of information. But at the end of the day, what you need to keep in mind, whatever I'm going to tell you is not going to impact how much we're going to get from it. And what you're going to get from it is what the market is ready to offer. My role is not to tell you, look, you're going to have that valuation. My role is to help you out as an M&A advisor, right? Not as a financial duty agent. But as an M&A advisor, my role is to get the word out there, get as many people around the table as possible, and then work out the whole process to make sure that you get the most value out of it. And I can also help you out by presenting the numbers better. By making sure that what we introduce to the investors are clean numbers that will represent the real trend of your companies and focusing all on the main metrics, right? But at the end of the day, the only thing you're going to get is someone who's happy to buy your company and they're going to sell the price. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but, but no, but that thing about, you know, running a process, right? Mm-hmm. Which helps create more interest and more demand, which obviously, you know, can create more offers. And- and potential bidding on office and things like that is one of the, is one of the crucial roles. And it's interesting, like the interaction you have between the niche that you're in, the deep financial analysis you're able to do, which of course, when you're representing a client allows you to highlight the good, you know, the good details that maybe differentiates yes. them is, is really helpful. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So you also said, so so just to really break it down for the folks, so you, you do the financial analysis, you do the investment banking, right? Putting deals mm-hmm. together. And then you also mentioned quickly that your, your partners are raising a fund now. Yes. So what was the, I mean, you know, it would seem logical to me, you know, if I had, a, without having the discussion with you, if I had to say, oh, why are they raising a fund? I'm thinking to myself, well, listen, they're deep into this financial analysis. They have this specialization in a niche. Obviously as an advisor, you know, it's one thing, but the ability to then, uh, invest in the deals that you feel are great, but it seems like an obvious sort of extension for me. I mean, you, you see so many deals, so there's been a position to make that analysis and investment decision. 
So is it that straightforward on why you guys decided to, you know, to, to raise a fund? So, so basically, Horizon Capital has, from the start, has been created with a long-term vision of managing a, portfol a portfolio of SaaS companies. Yeah. Uh, so the founder, Akil, he used to be a CEO, a general manager of a couple of SaaS businesses and internet businesses before, as background in digital marketing, digital growth. So the whole idea of when we started was to invest in companies, acquire a majority of the company and basically grow them. So we would identify companies that have bad SEO, are not using all the digital marketing channels. So all companies where we knew that within 12 months, we could have a significant impact on the top line. COVID happened and we were trying to, uh, to, to operate on this independent sponsor model where you raid on a deal by deal basis. Our first deal was going to happen literally two weeks after COVID. So it made, it, it definitely made things more difficult for us, which is also why we focus for, for a while more on, on the financial, financial advisory side of, of things, right? Uh, waiting for, for him to settle down. And now we realize, okay, if you want to go and be serious about benefiting from the deal flows that we have, from the operational expertise that we have, from the MN expertise that we have, because we also have one of the senior managers in Horizon has like 30 years of experience doing MN, focusing on MNA and, and CFO, CFO roles. So let's raise the form. Uh, let's start with 25 million, where we're going to invest in companies, but instead of acquiring a majority, we're going to take a minority so that we keep the founders. Because one thing that, you know, a, a huge feedback we had from LPs was was that when we were trying to exit the founders, they were kind of worried that if the founder is not here anymore, you know, there may be things that we're not aware of. We're at higher risk of uh, maybe getting screwed during the deal or, or, or that person uh, hiding things from us. So now the idea is, is simple. People doing one to five million dollars in ARR that have grown generally bootstrap. They feel like they could grow faster, but they may be lacking either the budget for digital marketing, but also the knowledge. So we come in, we give them the money, and part of that money is going to be allocated to gross marketing, and we're going to end all that, uh, that budget. Yeah. And, and would I be correct in assuming that you're also, in addition, is it really mainly money that they need, or they're also, like, do you have a, a team of executives that people that you place in there that can, can help them with, with, with growth, that you also help them with management team expansion? I mean, we, we do have a network and you know, that again, it could be a full conversation. What I've seen at least over the past three years is the model of companies employee has totally switched. Like no more and more organizations are getting created and built based on your network, on vetted, vetted uh, independent, independent contractors or independent experts. And yes. that's really how we build the model. I mean, even, even us. As a, as partner with independent contractor from a, from a legal perspective. And so, yeah, the, the answer is yes. We do have a specialist that we've been working with for, for the past uh, three years, specialist in bed ads. We have a specialist in SEO. We have a specialist in everything. And so the way we see our, our role going is we handle everything internally from a deal sourcing perspective, from a deal execution and investment. And when it comes to operation, Akil acts more as the general manager of finding the right resources, designing the strategy. And then for the execution, we also have the resources we, we can leverage to, to, uh, to help the company grow based on, on their needs. Right. Right. So you're not just 
provide listen, money is important, but but you know, I mean, a lot of people in the deal space will tell you that obviously, you know, there's a distinction between financial investors and strategic investors, and, and traditionally. You think about funds being financial advisors, you know, investors and strategic investors being maybe operating companies in the same space. But the, but there's, there are also funds like yours that provide strategic health advice and connections as well, which really obviously makes sense because usually, in my experience, there's almost nobody that just needs money. No. There's always something else they need in addition to money. Or generally, the guy who just needs money they, they, they get the money. Right. Because they're, they're already doing so great that people are, are just throwing out their money at them. That's right. That's right. That's right. Totally makes sense. All right. So this is, so this is, this is fascinating. So what are you seeing? Let's just cover one more area. There's so much we can talk about, but what are you seeing generally in the, in the SaaS space in terms of, in terms of deals, in terms of, you know, the money that's out there in terms of valuations, in terms of trends? Obviously we've generally in the economy had a really good stretch until Yes. So what recently? Well, I mean, obviously, listen, we had, we had, we had COVID, which adversely affected a lot of folks, but, but, but in my experience, a lot of tech did really well during, during COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So that was not a, in fact, it was a boom time for some. So that, but so what are you seeing? You know, when obviously more recently there's been some, there's been war and inflation and in the U.S., some stock market, you know, bumps and elsewhere as well. So what do you, what are you seeing on the trends on SaaS deals? Yeah, so the trend on Saturday, and uh, you're right, during COVID, valuation exploded. And that was also kind of an issue because we were having conversation with LPs that were also telling us, look, I can just invest money on the stock markets and have the same type of return with all the liquidity. So why would I invest in private equity deal that will take five years? And I mean, you, you started, now, that was good logic to have at that point. However, Mostly because of the war, I think, I think that was a trigger, the war and the uh, rates that, that were increased. So I talk also to other VCs and, and investors. What they see is there was sorry, a decrease of 50 to 70% of the valuation of, uh, of VC-backed companies. VC-backed companies are generally like hyper-growth companies. And a decrease by 50% of the amount of money you raised on average. Right. But th- that's really for the category of cash burning, super growth companies. Yep. Us, we focus more on, on companies that are already profitable, basically. So, which is quite different from VCs. On that front, so valuation have clearly come down and valuation expectations have come down, which is great because it's, uh, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I had with people wanted eight times ARR when they were growing 10% year on year. So now, People are way more realistic in, the, in terms of, of expectation, but it, feel, it feels like based on, on the couple of deals I've seen that valuation are still fairly stable for, for profitable companies. And one reason of that is because sure, you value them on a multiple of ARR, but generally you also do a mix of a multiple of EBITDA. And since EBITDA is still, uh, still the same when they've not been impacted by, by the whole global situation, then they still manage to, to get some, uh, some good multiples. Yeah. And, and what about one of the things that we're seeing, even in some of the industries that are maintaining valuation multiples are some changes in deal structures. From, yeah, yes. What's happened in a lot of industries is more and more money was co- coming up front, right? There was less that was contingent or leverage or earn out or whatever. Now we're seeing a little more shift to the back end in a lot of industries where, and we just some stuff in SaaS as well. Is, is are you seeing the same thing? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But as far as we're concerned, we've always tried to structure deals with earnouts. 
but because because deals were getting more and more competitive, then people had a tendency to put more cash up front. Not necessarily that they want to, just because that was the only way for, for them to get the deals. Now it gets less competitive and people are, are more prudent, then then you'll see more and more earn out or defer demand. And that's also true for, for fundraising. I actually have a friend who was trying to raise his Series B at the moment, and the couple offers that he has on the table, they basically make the the amount of money they're investing contingent on on them hitting certain targets. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, listen, it's it's a classic move of trying to de-risk the transaction by having these contingencies and or earnouts or, or deferred. Whereas, yeah, when the market's hot, 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 and there's a lot of money out there and, you know, and, and plus, I mean, it's interesting. I've seen, I mean, in some industries I've seen, whereas traditionally down payments were 25 to 33 percent, they, in some industries, they, they were up 80 percent, 80 percent in some of these deals, which is in concept crazy, but, but that's what the market was. And now they may not be back down to 25. About 33, but they're 60, 50, maybe pushing back towards, you know, more traditional. Exactly. Um, you know, yeah, absolutely. But that also, that also makes it more important for, for people to, to be advised by MN experts. Like I, I've, I've, I've actually written one or two articles about earnout and all the technicity about earnout. You have a lot of things to think about, right? On paper, it's super simple. Yeah. Okay. We are, you have targets and if you hit the target, you get the amount of money. But when you start deep diving into it, and for sure you, you, you must be seeing that every day as a lawyer, you need to structure that out correctly. So it starts with the definition. Then it follows, okay, what metrics do you use? And you want to make sure that you use metrics that can't be manipulated by, by management. And then what happens if you don't hit those targets, but you're very close to it? You know, so you have a lot of mechanism to think about to make sure that, you know, you have a fair agreement. And that you don't incentivize the management team into the wrong direction. Yeah, no, that's that, that's that's super important. And obviously, as earnouts are becoming bigger and bigger, I mean, it's always important. As earnouts become the bigger, bigger piece of the deal, less money up front, it becomes even more important. No question about. It. Well, great stuff. Listen, we can we can talk forever. I, I I love the different perspectives here in the niche, and you know, and it's interesting to me. I look at some of these being it being my main business, not being in a uh, recovering revenue business. I mean, we, listen, I'm not complaining. We've done very, very well. And I built a very, you know, successful and traditional firm. But for me, every time I had revenue, I had expense because I mainly, you know, I have people, right? And I let, yeah, yeah build that model and I build them out at X times when I, when I pay them and all that kind of stuff. But there's always been a little bit of jealousy as an entrepreneur of, of assessing, you know, businesses where they can, you know, yes, there's a lot of work in the beginning and obviously they got to sell it or whatever, but, but they get recovering revenue, the ability to scale without having proportional expense, you know, scaling. It's, uh, it's always been a fascinating business for me and we have a number of clients in the space and um, them. some investment in the space. So yeah, yeah. Especially when you see a one-man company doing one million in, in error and the guy working five hours per week on it, <laughs> right? You know, yeah, and, and, and you know, that, and that really, it really does happen. Now, listen, you know, it, I don't think either of us would, you know, for some people. I mean, who's Tim Ferriss wrote the four-hour work week or whatever it was, and all this stuff. You know, and I think some people got the misimpression that that means that it's easy, right? Yeah. You know, that you can just, you know, and it's not. Read it out. It's just. It's just different. And, and, and when you, and when you get past that difficult period and you do figure it out, yes, it can become this. And, 
as passive, a, a comparatively passive an income stream as possible, other than being just truly a passive, you know, investor. And, you know, and even more than that, because it's never, if they, if they continue to grow, it's never passive because they're focusing on the customer acquisition and the marketing yes. and it'll be something to do. But at least on the operational and growth side, it's just, it's, it's much more scalable, you know, potentially. But, but yeah, it's not, uh, listen, if, well, you see everybody would do it and there were a time when everybody tried to do it. <clears throat> frankly, most of them failed. Yeah, but you know what they say. It took me five years to have an overnight success. Yeah, right. That's right. That's right. Right. And, and five years is great. Sometimes it's 10 or 15, right? So exactly. <laughs> Honestly, I do think that the whole SaaS business and internet business thing, especially with no code now and how easy, if you have a bit of knowledge of how to code, how easy it is to put together or something, it has totally changed the perspective on how you can be successful. Because I'm pretty sure if you deep dive into the stories, most of the people that are successful, especially the ones that have multi-million exits, they, they put a lot of work into it. However, now, I also saw over the past three years focusing on that, you have a subcategories of people who manage to make a few hundred Ks a year by barely working just because, you know, they start developing one and maybe they're going to make 10K, 10K months with it. And then they develop another one and they develop another one. And just by doing that, those micro steps and micro projects, they manage to, to, uh, to, uh, to have a, quite a solid income, which was yeah, not possible. Question. And listen, that was something that was not possible in, in, in the pre-digital, you know, economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that just, no. did, that ob kind of opportunity just did not, did not exist. So you're absolutely right. That is, you know, comparatively different. So Pierre, before I ask you my final question, if people want to learn more about the various you know, services that you provide, or, you know, I know you're raising a fund, whatever, more about you personally, what, where do they go? What, what, sh what should they look? They, they can go on the Horizon website, Horizon, Z-E-N, so H-O-R-I-Z-E-N, capital.com, and where, where we present a whole lot of different services. And if they're actually interested in learning more about the fund, they can reach out directly to me because we 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 have a private landing page on that. And I mean, if it's easier, I'm always happy to have a conversation anyway. Or it could right. be for today, could be for for next year, it could be just to pick up to pick my brain on on the subject. I'm always keen to have conversation anyway. So they can reach out at Pierre at HorizonCapital.com. Excellent, excellent. And as I mentioned, the bio Pierre has done. That does a lot of writing. You can certainly find some of his articles out there and things like that. So Pierre, my final question of the podcast is always about my highest ideal in life, which is freedom. And that to me means everything from freedom, from oppression, from all people in the world to the reason I'm an entrepreneur and I haven't had a boss in decades. So what does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? Yeah, I've thought, I've thought a lot about it. And I read quite a lot about the notion of freedom. I think about it. Yeah, even read comics about freedom. Like if you, if you know One Piece, the whole One Piece saga has been built around the notion of what is freedom mm. uh, and what is to be the, the most free man in the world. Honestly, at this stage in my life, because obviously, you know, your conception changes as you go older with your experience. But at this stage of my life, my conception of freedom is the absence of obstacle and of frustration. Mm. So... If you bring that back to money, <clears throat> for me, money doesn't allow me to buy things or property. It allows me to get rid of all the things in my life that I don't, don't like to do. Could be the tiny thing like 
I don't like to do calls, so I can hire someone to do the course. If I want to go to a nice restaurant and, and, and enjoy things, then I can do that without feeling like um, I'm compensating or I'm giving up something. And also, and most importantly, I think being financially stable allows you to be very independent because then you don't need to take order from, from anyone. And when, when you do things for people, you actually do it out of your own will because you want to help them, because you have work ethics, but you don't do it because you're pressurized into doing it. Love that. Love that. Pierre, thanks for being such a great guest on the Best Podcast. Thanks, Corey. I really, really enjoy that. We can do that anytime you want. Awesome. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.